Welcome back, everybody, to the Deposit That Podcast. I'm sitting here with Teru. Welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me, Jeff. Oh, my pleasure. Last minute notice. I got a text late last night, 11 o'clock, like, hey, got this lady. She wants to be on a podcast. And I'm like, I love her story. Let's do it. So awesome. here Thank we are, you. like less than 24 hours later. Yeah, thanks for being patient. Totally, I showed up late. Totally patient. Totally. We're on no, <laughs> no time frame. So I want to know all about you. We'll start off from the beginning. Who are you? So Teru, Teru Clavel now. Born a long time ago. Where were you born? I was born at Stanford Hospital in Stanford, Connecticut. Okay. Lived in Greenwich, Connecticut till I was six. Moved mm-hmm. to New York City and then went to school in New York. And then, let's see. What moved school? In New York City. College, yeah. Wow, okay. So let's see. My whole history. Uh-oh. I went to a school that's now a different name, but it now is called Putnam Indian Field Preschool. Okay. I loved it okay. in, in Connecticut. And then I went to the North Street School, which is still their public school, great school on North Street. And then I went to the Dalton School, kind of at the time a celebrity heavy private school in New York City. Okay. Then moved to, my father passed away, lifestyle change, moved out back to the suburbs for oh, high school. Yeah. I was just before my 13th birthday. Wow. Yeah. Tough. And my mom, pretty much single mom, first gen immigrant. I'm an only child. Where are so. you from originally? Like well, what, what background? Oh, well, yeah, it's an interesting question you ask. I'm actually from America, but I'm, I'm racially, um, I'm Mom. half Japanese. Yeah. Oh, really? Oh, wow. Yeah. Awesome. For high school, I went to another kind of posh-ish high school in the suburbs, Rye Country Day. Okay. Ended up at Dartmouth College in New Hampshire. Yep. Studied Asian studies and then uh, went on and had a bunch of jobs in my 20s. Are we going to continue on? With um, I'm listening. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I got my, both my ears right now. Um, better than one. And then... Um, so you went to Dartmouth for what? Obviously, college, for education. <laughs> what particular field or what did you like want to be when you were going from high school into college, when you grew up? Well, talking to you, it's interesting. I think all I wanted to be was an entrepreneur. Serious? Yeah. Really? Even at that age? Yeah. In high school, they would have all these, you know, like career night. They'd have all these like different rooms and... Yeah. You were selling lemonade? Of course. <laughs> I sold raspberries. I sold lemonade. Probably sold origami swans. I mean, I... Oh, my God. I used to love those, but they're so hard to make. I never made them. I always just, like, <laughs> took them from people who made them. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I probably had tons of those, tried to sell them, probably never sold one. I was one of those kids. I always worked. Is that because you saw your mom hustle? No, I wanted to make money. I was like an... I really, from the time I was 12, I stuffed envelopes. I was in a mail room. I rolled up posters, put them in those tubes and mailed them. I was a waitress. I was a filer. I So do you think you had like a hyperactive brain? Is that why? Yeah, like I always had to stay busy? Probably. Yeah. But I but I also really wanted to be independent. And the way to independence in this country is through making money. So I think that there's me personally, yeah. right? Like people look for different things in partnerships and relationships and people, right? I think being independent is like the sexiest thing anyone can be mm. because like you're able to show that you stand on your own two feet. Now mm-hmm. look, and at certain parts of life, right, you're going to need help, you're going to need assistance, you're going to need guidance, but standing on your own feet doesn't necessarily mean you're alone. It means necessarily sometimes that you need someone else to kind of like hold you up when you're tilting or coming off path. So I think someone that wants to be independent, like that's such a first start of like your route to success or entrepreneurship. You know, people forget how important it is to really stand on your own two feet and sometimes fall down. Well, I realize you're a male here, but as a female, having grown up, being raised by 
oddly enough, a traditional kind of Japanese mom in mm-hmm. terms of her values. But strict, right? Very strict, I would assume. Well, strict, assume. maybe. I would say she just had really high expectations of me. I think it was odd because she grew up very poor after World War II in Japan. They would say probably of her generation, overly educated. She went, she was one of the top students in her highly competitive high school. And it was kind of understood at that time that if you are, then you're not going to get married. And then worse yet, she left Osaka and went to Tokyo and went to a competitive university. So at that point, everybody thought this is she's never going to get married. So I'm going to tell you what I just heard, and correct me if I'm wrong. Maybe I, you know, I, sometimes I hear things, I process them a little bit differently. Yeah. But what I heard was, so because your mother was overeducated, she probably wouldn't get married. Is that because she wouldn't need to be dependent on a male to take care of her? No, because she'd be completely unattractive to any Japanese man. Of because, that society. She's, because she's educated. Because she's so too educated. Seriously. Yeah. Well, and that was even back then. Oh yeah. Wow. So that was, you know, in the in the fifties and sixties. Yeah, sure. So she came first ticket she got, she basically came to the US. Right. So I guess I'm saying all that because while my mom was very ambitious herself, at home she kind of had these traditional expectations of what a woman should do. Because her parents instilled that in her. Yeah. Well the whole society did. Pretty much this is what the woman's role is and this is what the, the man's role What's is. What's your opinion on that? was very confusing. Sure. And the reason I even bring this up, I think, is because then I really wanted to be an entrepreneur. And then there I am in my 20s. I have these mixed messages because I'm supposed to be getting married and having children and staying home and taking care of them. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, I kind of wanted to do my own thing. Freedom. Yeah. And it was, it's, it's, it's a really hard thing to balance. And I'm not, and I don't think that's just necessarily a cultural thing. It's everywhere. Yeah. Yeah. So it was, I mean, Japan still has a lot more gender inequity. Than the US I mean, I know does. the Indian culture in general. Like, it was my friend last night, and he had a big Indian wedding, and he was sitting there like cracking jokes the whole time. Like, yeah, I'm your stereotypical. Like, had a big Indian wedding, married another Indian, you know. And I'm like, he's like, I felt, but I felt pressure. My my parents and mm-hmm. my family all, you know, arranged everything. So it's interesting how some cultures still to this day, mm-hmm. you know, have that. I mean, you could look at it as here's like the foundation, here's how it should be, here's the society pressure. Mm-hmm. But some cultures just, you know, overstep society and have much more ingrained, you know, recommendations, if you will, as far as that goes. It's interesting. I mean, it's there. The beauty of that is that marriage can be really hard mm-hmm. or it's it's, oh, it's sure. challenging. Right. Yeah. And having kids is even yeah. more challenging. So if you have the support of your community mm-hmm. and having such a huge wedding, it actually is a beautiful thing. Sure. But it's just the, the rules that you fulfill sometimes it can they can be very conflicting the messages so it was hard for me because then and I you know and then in my 20s I had various jobs and whatnot and then I get married and then I did end up following my husband to Hong Kong with oh, our wow. two children and it was for his job that we ended up there and suddenly it was okay so I'm not who am I I'm suddenly someone's wife so I'm to this, reinvent yourself very much so and then scary we, it well I actually like a lot of challenges so yeah. to me like it was live dangerously well, I'm curious. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I, I like to go out and explore different places. So sure. it was good, except you can't really, it's very difficult, why don't I say, to build a career when you're moving every two to four years. Plus with kids. With kids. So I had my third child in Hong Kong, but we were in Hong Kong for four years, then Shanghai for two, Tokyo for four, Palo Alto for two, and then finally came back home last summer. And, you know, it's it's through all that, and we can talk about that if it's even interesting. But in 2011, I went back to school for a master's in comparative and international education, which most people say, well, what is that? Which I was just going to ask that. You beat me to it. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's it's comparing different education systems across different countries and figuring out what works, what doesn't work, how they're funded, 
the cultural practices. It's really cool because it's a social science. So mm-hmm. you study everything from anthropology to government to economics. It's it's a really so you learned sociology. A lot. Yeah, it was it was really really challenging, especially for someone who hadn't been in school for a number sure. of years. Yeah, back to different life. Oh, completely. But yeah, so this whole thing of being an entrepreneur, it's kind of I've always had it in me, and it's starting up again. I feel like now that I'm I've written my book and it's out and it's a platform for something further. But it did definitely have to be put so on. Tell hold. us about this book you have out. When did it come out? It just came out last month. Wow, it's recent. Yes. With, what, what's uh, the feedback been so far? Well, you know, the people who tell me, who talk to me about it, sure. when, and I get a lot of fan mail and people say oh, it's, cool. yeah, it's cool. It's people say they love it because it makes them rethink how they're raising their kids. And so it's basically about what we can learn from the parenting and educational practices in the countries where we lived. I always enrolled my children not in a, what typically expatriates will enroll their children in international schools. Mm-hmm. And I enrolled my kids in the local public schools where we lived. So we lived as, locally as we could within kind which, of our which constraints. Which I believe in, by the way. I do. I, I yeah, agree it was awesome. It was a full immersion experience. Yep. And yep. Japanese is my first language. So in Japan, it wasn't nearly as difficult to navigate, although it def- definitely had its challenges. Do your kids speak multiple languages? Yeah. So they are trilingual in English, Mandarin, and Japanese. Wow. It's valuable. Yeah, yeah it was awesome. It's like little, three little assets. Yeah, well, we'll see. For the, <laughs> certainly for the future of this country. Sure. Of course. Yeah, <laughs> no, right. For sure. What yeah. are they into? Like, what are your kids all about? So let's see. Not to pigeonhole them, which is exactly what I'm about to do. Right. My oldest, he's he's a really good first child. Okay. So he helps out. Uh, I don't know if he helps out more <laughs> than the others. I would say he he does right. He, I mean, they all rebel at certain points, but for the most part, he follows the rules and he knows what's expected of him, and and he wants to do right. He he's a pretty ambitious kid. He's, he's, I'm, I'm really proud of him. If, if I were to ask, if anybody were to say, what's your number one interest, he'd say baseball. Wow. Yeah. Does he play? He plays. He's a, he's the first baseman and relief pitcher. Oh, wow. Yeah. Does he want to play on like college and try and hit pros one day or? I, I think he's a little more realistic. I he think is. he really, he likes it. He sure. loves it's it. It's his passion. It's his passion, but he probably that, that come from else. you or his father or is it just something that he picked up on his own? It's funny. I think raising kids, you have to watch what they like. And when they were still really, really small and we would walk around Central Park, he would just stop at the batting. at the, the Softball fields. The, yeah. I was probably playing. You were? Yeah. What'd so I used play? to play like 140 softball games in Central Park by 63rd Street every year for five years straight. Wow. Okay. Yeah, there you go. 25 to like... 30, let's well, call then it. I'm meeting. Yeah. I'm meeting the genesis of my, my son's uh, <laughs> oh, baseball awesome, career. Yeah. They used to stand behind the dugout, like yeah. while I sit in the stands. Like in the middle of the day, there's like it looks like Yankee Stadium packed. People are on both sides. It's pretty cool. That yeah, is it's cool. really it's really cool. Yeah. That's all about community. Yeah, it's all about community that, and that's like amazing. coming to one isolated location. What team did you play for? So I played for um, Gotham Comedy Club. This was great. So I, I've been in real estate lending since I'm 20 years old. I started in. December 2007, when I got cut from my college football team. I played at Fordham University in the yeah. Bronx. I got cut. And I'm like, what am I going to do? So I get into residential mortgages, another collapsing industry, right? At 20 years old. Wow. So I killed myself until I was like 23, 24. Like, and then I'm like, oh my God, I'm going to die by 30 if I keep this pace up. And I was hitting crazy numbers, making a ton of money, running wow. profit and losses for banks, like just crazy stuff. And I'm like, my passion's really sports. Like mm-hmm. sports came to an abrupt end and I kind of just put it away. I kind of like closed that in my mind, that chapter out. Even though it wasn't closed, like the door kept reopening. I played for Gotham Comedy Club at one o'clock on Mondays, which is awesome. I played for CBS Sports on Wednesdays at one, which is really awesome. I played for Halstead Real Estate 
one night a week. I played for the Actors Fund, which is the Broadway Show League, at 3.30 on Thursdays. I played double headers down in the Lower East Side, the East Village, like on Fridays. So many questions are popping into and my head right I go, now. Oh, what do you yeah. got? And then double headers on Saturday in the Men's Central Park League. But what I did it for was to be a part of different people's lives. So like Mondays were actors, like they're all real get people, men and women, but their profession was acting or comedy. And then, you know, CBS was cool. Those were like writers, editors, ESPN guys, you know, guys that were in the sports world that were still living the dream to chase, right? Uh-huh. And then Halstead was obviously real estate. I did more Halstead for like friendship and networking because I could get business from them. I uh-huh. ran their team, which is pretty cool. Being in the Actors Fund, I was around Broadway. So like, you know, Al Pacino's daughter plays in the league. Like really cool people that you probably wouldn't be like usually in the same room with hanging out. But we use sports as that commonality. And then in the East Village, you know, those are mostly like bartenders and stuff that had like odd end gig jobs, which is cool because I never had an odd end gig job, you know, in my adult life. So I got exposure to them directors tv producers and stuff and then saturday was like just straight like dominican puerto rican you know central park softball league like playing with the like you know some of the top talent in new york city so it gave me different walks of life to like kind of be, be a chameleon with yeah so it was really cool i just have so many we should, we should we should turn this around i'll interview you now all so right we can flip it around wasn't there a conflict of interest if you're playing for so many different teams well they were all different leagues so Central Park, so I was told that New York City has something like 600 different independent softball leagues, all different stadium, or, you know, places, fields, stadiums, some are on Roosevelt Island, some are in Long Island City down by the waterfront. So it was pretty cool, actually, playing in different, you know, tournaments and stuff with people because like, there was a lot of overlap. So maybe two guys from this team played on two guys from this team. Oh, my God. So you were know? you the ringer? I was. I was. <laughs> what did yeah. you play? I'm an outfielder. I got a pretty big arm. And our first game, it was super funny, like... No one ever knew me as an athlete. They just knew me as like the mortgage guy. They knew I was like younger. You know, they're like, you know, 35 to 55. So I was playing left field. Like they didn't know where to place me. And like I went in like, all right, no, I'm just going to come and play. That's yeah, all. I'm just yeah. here to play. Have fun. They're like, oh, you go in the outfield. You know, they put it, they put all like the, the people they don't know in the outfield. Go catch yeah, yeah, balls. Yeah. So I caught a ball in left field and there was a runner on first base and he didn't, he didn't know me. And he tried like tagging up against me, but he didn't go back in time. And I threw him out from left field at first base. And everyone was like do you want to be a center fielder? Like, do you want to like help us run the team? I'm like, yeah, sure. You know, it's awesome. So there's a pretty cool like story on how it all came about, but that actually got me into, you know, like what my passion was and like still actually taking care of like my mind and body and not just focusing on work all the time. It really helped me like focus on the work life balance. Did you actually have a job at that point? Cause it sounds like you're a professional softball player. So yeah. So, you know, what's interesting about mortgages are and real estate, most of the game is done after hours, right? You know, people work during the day. So when you have to like meet people or talk to people for an extended period of time, you know, 5 to 10 p.m. was the busy time. And in the morning, like 8 to 12, like before work, while people are getting settled in. So I found a way to like use my dead time, if you will, for my own time. So even in today's world, I go to the gym during the day and I block out specific times that are usually busy for, you know, my main businesses. Fascinating. Yeah. So as far as education goes, let's get back to the education part. I know that's really what you're big on, right? classrooms, education, like the whole schooling system. I want to hear your opinion, okay, on what the three biggest problems are today in schooling in America, all mm-hmm. the way from preschool mm-hmm. through high school. It's a lot of questions. I know. Okay. Well, we have a problem from conception in this country because it's really hard to grow out of the socioeconomic environment that you were born into. 
it's only gotten worse. So the intergenerational mobility has gotten worse over the last, the last generation. So the last 30 or so years, it wasn't like that when I was growing up. I mean, you could still have the American dream and be born in an unlucky circumstance and have an education and have greater opportunities. And now that doesn't happen because there's so many blocks. So it starts with your lack of community resources, the lack of funding for babies, childcare. And when you have, let's say, a dual income earning family or you have a single parent, it's really obviously challenging to raise a child. And then, I don't know how you could have a single parent household. So I have a one-year-old yeah. and I'm not with his mother. And it's difficult having him when I have him 50% of the time, like doing it one-on-one. Exactly. It's, so it's impo- I'm going to say it's impossible. Like obviously it's done. It's very challenging. It's super, super hard. Mm-hmm. So when you have... Plus the cost of daycare and everything the else. The cost of daycare. And, and so right from the beginning. And a lot of times, unfortunately, is the child, you may not have two educated parents, let alone one right. who's raising the child. Right. And there's, you know, sadly, but truly, you know, if you don't, it, the more educated you are as a parent, the more you can pass that on to your child mm-hmm. through all kinds of educational experiences and knowledge and taking them places and exposing them to different things, right? So it happens really early on. And then you talk about our inequitable funding model of education in this country, where on average, 45% of funding for schools comes from your local tax area. Mm -hmm. And then you have 45% in general from your state and then the remainder from the federal government. So obviously, if you're living in a place that doesn't have really high property taxes, Screwed. right? Pro- yeah, property values. Your your Screwed. kid is going to end up at a school that is not being funded that well. And I traveled the I traveled the country a couple of years ago and visited schools, and those that are underfunded. I mean, there are no textbooks for the kids. If they have a smartphone, they're doing their reading on their smartphones. Kids usually go to school because that's where their socialization takes school place. School hasn't been renovated since the 60s. Yeah. Like I mean, purple, pink, and blue bathrooms. Absolutely. <laughs> like, and, you know, as long as you're safe, I actually don't think you need to spend that much money on sure. the physical. The, the appearance? The, really? You don't think so? I don't I, I don't think so. I think the – well, I don't think. I very fervently believe in no. The most important money you can spend in a school is on the teacher. Interesting and getting the best teachers in that classroom. That's an interesting point. So my brand, so I have two brands. I have the Mortgage Quarterback, which is a pretty cool brand. I incorporate sports into mortgages. I quarterback people to help get them the right mortgage for themselves. Oh, cool. You're talking to kind of a non-football person, so uh, not even kind of like a non-football. So coach guides, uh, you think of it as like the Mortgage Quarterback is a coaching program, if you will. So I became the expert, and now the Mortgage Quarterback, like the quarterback on the football field says – when I get the ball, who I throw the ball to, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. where I tell you to stand. Mm-hmm. Think of it as like the general on the yeah. field, right? Okay. That's where it came from. And then I have the positive that, which is the entrepreneurial side, you know, obviously the podcast. And that's more of like a, hey, here's like the one thing I want you to deposit. Here's what I want you to add to your life, personal and business. I relate everything back to sports because I truly believe in my heart, sports, when run properly, in today's world, even for the past, I'm 32, so for the past 32 years, has taught me and people that I know mm-hmm. much more about life and how to succeed in life than any schools that my friends went to, whether it's Princeton, Harvard, Dartmouth, Cornell, mm-hmm. you name it, high sure. upper echelon schools. It comes down to what I believe like people have a reactive tendency to fill a void. What I mean by that is, hey, I know how to do one thing great. But we don't need that. We need you to be the janitor. Okay, well, we're going to put you in this role that you don't know. You're not the expert. And in Mm -hmm. schooling, it's like, oh, our math teacher up and left us. 
you know, bring this history major over and just fill that void. Now that a math teacher, now the math teacher mm-hmm. doesn't know math. They're literally learning it as they're teaching the kids. Mm-hmm. And then eventually when they do learn it, they're like, well, I want more money. And most teachers from what I've learned, I have a ton of friends that were teachers. I'm at the age, right? Yeah. Everyone wanted to be a teacher have had to get out of that because the income doesn't give them the ability to really live. Yeah. They have summers sure. off, but they're living basically in poverty. Yeah, Absolutely. So what do you think about that? I mean, how do you allocate the funds appropriately? So the funds should be towards recruiting, retaining, and training teachers. It's the most important expenditure for a school, for a school district, for the government, for state governors. Please Mm -hmm. listen to me Mm -hmm. because those are the only people right now who actually have any power in creating an equitable system. So basically, if you get, I mean, I I can tell you in Japan, for instance, there are 38,000 spots for 200,000 applicants. Wow. And what they have to do is comparable to become a teacher is comparable to passing the bar so or your boards. They're competing, but the bar, literally the bar is so high. I mean, in Japan, an elementary school teacher has to swim every kind of uh, stroke in the pool because they're the, the swim teacher. They have to do everything on the monkey bars that a kid does. I mean, they have to be able to do the twirly, sure, twirl, sure, twirl. Sure. They have can you, to. Can you do that? I, I used to. <laughs> no I more. Used to. No, no, definitely not anymore. Um, <laughs> They have to be able to sight read, sight sing, play the keyboard because they're the music teachers. And they every teacher in Japan knows how to do that. Wow. And they have to be able to teach all the subject areas. The bar is just so high. So if you brought something like that to the United States mm-hmm. where we respected mm-hmm. our teachers. Teachers I mean, aren't respected. They're not respected. But can you imagine if the bar, I mean, if you had, if your child was going to a school every day taught by someone as educated as your doctor you have a lot more respect for them right. automatically. And you wouldn't question them. You, would, you wouldn't. Right. But here, when the bar is so low and mm-hmm. when what the saying is when you can't do teach, right. it's already setting up the system right. for failure. It's a fallback option. It is. And, you know, it, it, it's, it's such a shame. And then, so then the next step is not only do you have to bring the best and brightest into the profession, then you have to keep them, right? Which means paying them. Yep. Right. And giving them a career path. Resources, voice, all of it. All of it. But we don't even we, we don't have a career path for them. So it's interesting. So it's the anti entrepreneur, right? Complete because opposite. you're told yeah, yeah. fifth Absolutely. grade, you're a teacher for fifth grade yep. and stay there for thirty years. That's it. No evol- no evolution. You're at your ceiling, you capped out. Yeah, and, and, and we'll incentivize you to keep to keep it that way because we're offering your tenure. And so guess so what? you can't leave. Well, you can, <laughs> you but can, then but, but then you lose all your guess what? Sure. And when you're when you tap out of the system at whatever age it can be for your area. Sure. You're going to get, you know, all the benefits, pension, everything. So just stay that way. So again, I have an interesting story. Like I said, I started in the collapsing market when I was 20 years old. Now, I tell you, I knew nothing. I think about, I went from chasing footballs to catch, I played wide receiver and girls in college, right? To hustling mortgages in literally the worst economic times, you know, second to the Great Depression, they say, right? We were in a depression, but they called it the recession. Really bad time. Terrible. Bad career choice. Best career choice. And here's why. Well, here's why. Right? Okay. So I was able to give a 20-year-old's perspective, right, when everything was collapsing. Like I spent the night Lehman Brothers actually officially closed mm-hmm. with my best friend in the car who now works at Goldman Sachs, watching the people from Lehman Brothers walk out of the mm-hmm. building like ants. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, what caused this? Mm-hmm. What caused this? Why did this happen? I'm like, I'm 20, but I want to make sure this never happens again. Because I wasn't making money because I was making more money than everyone my age at the time Mm because I worked my butt off, right, to go out there and learn the business. I had to, if you wanted to make money from 07 to 
10 and 11, you needed to learn how to structure a mortgage loan and like how to like have resources and call mm-hmm. in favors to get things done. You had to be creative and think outside the box. That's mm-hmm. not, that's probably why I never liked school. So when I wrote my book, The Mortgage Playbook for Millennials, yeah, you could learn information from it. Yeah, I have a cool story. Some say the main purpose of it was really to show the collateral damage that occurred due to lack of transparency and education in the real estate financial system because mm-hmm. nothing existed. Mm-hmm. I'm like, okay, how do I learn this? And you have some guy that's sitting in a two or $3,000 suit driving a Bentley, mm-hmm. like, ah, I don't know, let's go get another mortgage loan. I'm like, no, 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 can you explain? And yeah. nobody would take the time to explain it because there was no transparency, right? And I'm like, mm-hmm. whether you're in your mother's womb or you're five years old or 12 years old or about to go to college, you were negatively impacted by the collapse of the market in 2008. I don't care what anybody says mm-hmm. because everyone felt that pinch, which then trickles down to parents getting laid off, foreclosures, losing the homes, not having enough money to put food on the table, tension, divorce, and everything else, mm-hmm. all due to lack of education. And that's really what it boils down to. But so, so I'll throw this back at you. Why do you think there is that lack of transparency? That's a good question because the money didn't want transparency. The money that was behind everything. It's the, the corporate interest. No doubt. Bank owners have always hated me because I've always brought honesty and transparency to an industry full of, I'm going to use the word crooks. Not everyone's a crook in the industry, but people that are commission incentivized. And I always relate like the mortgage business on Wall Street to drug dealers. Like you have your big kingpin on Wall Street and they take advantage of desperate, you know, live life by the seat of your pants individuals that need to make a living that can make a lot of money to go out there and hustle their drugs for them. And then they bring the money back. And, you know, unfortunately, the victim is the user, you know, and unfortunately, in this case, it was the homeowner, you know, and it's just super sad. And people got away from the importance of the American dream, which back in the day was homeownership, you know, Mm -hmm. so seeing all that collapse and how it really impacted everybody, including the country. And we're still 10, 12 years out from there. People are still not fully recovered from that time frame. Oh, they're still not recovered at all. And, and I they can, say they are, and they're not. They're not. I mean, but you, I mean, you can think about, and I'll put that back to the equity issue too. So from that time, states still haven't equalized to pre-2008 spending levels at, all. at their schools. Yep. And what else you see happening is, so there's not a lot of transparency when it comes to student loans. Yeah, at all. Right. Yep. So you, what you do is you, this country pushes, and I will say, I'm, I do not think everybody should go to college in this country, Either. especially with a, with a sticker price as high as it yeah, is. Quarter million. It's, ridic- it's, it's absurd. Yep. And most countries, their higher education institutions are free. The top ones are free and they're public. Wow. Or they're relatively free, especially sure. in comparison to here. Sure. I mean, you're spending, you know, five or $10,000 a year is a Nothing. drop in the bucket yep. compared to yep. here, but most are actually free. And, when you think about how we're setting up this, you know, the millennials are how we're setting up, what are they doing? Even if they make it through high school, they're now encumbered with crazy student loans. They can't afford to buy a home. Well, it's for the government to control them. Well, they say if you burden somebody with debt, you're more able to be controlled. But what they don't realize is until they go postal and now all of a sudden they don't care and now they can't be controlled. Now there's anarchy. Well, that's an interesting point, too. But I, I think it's why I bring up private institutions versus public is because there's no transparency. Right. If you are a private Ivy League institution, although you are a nonprofit, mm-hmm. you don't have to disclose your admissions policy, your need blind policy. Nothing. And there's this big gap in the middle. So many years, not many years ago, maybe 10 or 15 years ago, there was a whole need blind admissions practice where it's, and then they said, okay, so if you make under a certain amount of money, then you can come here for free. 
Well, let's examine that for a moment because if you are making, let's say, $50,000 a year mm-hmm. or less, of course, college, it, it's, Has to be. I mean, it's the same price, yeah. Yeah. right? Yeah. Is your income. So you have to, but then let's look at how qualified those students are, right? And then they come to, to college and then they need a lot of resources and the colleges aren't prepared necessarily to give them Too much work. the support right. to get them college ready. Mm-hmm. So they end up dropping out and they're still, you know, they don't have necessarily the skills or they feel disenfranchised, the whole thing. Now you're looking at the middle class. So let's say you make what you may think is a is a reasonable six-figure salary, mm-hmm. unless you have more than one child. You still can't afford to send your kids to college. It's impossible. It's like yes. this whole country, it's like, and, and whose interests, that's why I was asked, whose interests are, are being met? And I think about this and I tell parents and educators, when you look at the newest curricular reform, or the newest tech innovation that you're putting into your classroom, mm-hmm. the latest textbook, the latest bouncy seat that everybody yeah. needs to or have. Devotable. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, right. Or the latest jungle gym. Sure. Do they really need it? And that's why the facilities thing, I mean, when they talk about that's spending. A, that's a like, shiny item, though. You know, they go, like, oh, look, what I remember. So funny story. Do you remember when smart boards first got implemented? Of course, yeah. So I was like maybe a freshman in high school. It was like, oh, one, 2000, 2001 mm-hmm. range. Yeah. And I remember like, oh, we our whole school got smart boards. Half the teachers couldn't use them. They didn't know how to use them. So I'm like, wait, we're sitting here looking at this $8,000 whiteboard and they're putting it up to write with chalk or with like a, a marker. Yeah. I mean, that's a, that's a classic Waste example. Money. It is. But you're a football player. I mean, how many places spend tens of millions of dollars on a football stadium when the classrooms can't even afford to get textbook? I agree with you. But that drives in, but from their standpoint, some guys are getting greased, if you know what I mean. Well, at in the order college get... level. But if you look at the local, even the high school sure, level, sure. why does that happen? Because you have a bunch of people who on Friday, yeah. Friday nights want to go to the high school gather football around. game. Yeah, gather around. You know, and... I would say let's, you know, you don't need to spend that much money in the football stadium when the kids don't even have the proper teachers and the teachers are striking because they're working two jobs to make ends meet. I mean, yeah, that whole, this country, but I will say, I want to go back to something you said about how sports taught you so much that Mm -hmm. you could never have gotten in the classroom. Mm -hmm. I completely agree with that in this country, but I think it's so sad that that has to be the case because right now, when you look at the way we're educating our kids, they get, you know five chances to get mastery, which is equivalent of an A. And I talk about this in my book, World Class, but when I was growing up, mm-hmm. everybody knew who got the A. Mm-hmm. It was deserved. Mm-hmm. It was the kid who worked their butt off, yep. right? Yep. In these days, everybody can get an A. It doesn't matter if you're working. You just have to keep trying until you get an A. And the thing about sports, although mm-hmm. there are 12th place and tr- participation trophies, which I completely disagree with, right? But there's a winner. Yep. And that's life. It has to be a winner. There has to, and, and, and that's, I don't, these days we're teaching kids to be unprepared for the real world. Yeah. Unrealistic expectations. It's like, because everything, everything comes at my terms. It's personalized sure. learning. I can sure. always get an A. The sure. world is going to be waiting for me. I can go Everything's straight handed to, to me. Yeah. And I can go to the president of the company yep. whenever I have a complaint. And, yep. you know, I don't blame, I'm sorry to say your generation of millennials because that's how we're educating them. You're right. And I, you only know what you're taught. Yeah, and it's it. I don't know. It's like we're hurting these kids, but there's so many teachers yeah. and and administrators and department heads, and I and we have Twitter battles over this because they think we should give our kids so many chances. No. And and they'll say to me, they say, well, it wouldn't be fair if we didn't let someone who 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 failed the bar not sure. take it again. And I said. Maybe, but at the same time, if they fail the bar three times, I certainly wouldn't want them to be my lawyer. Right. Nor would I want someone who didn't pass his medical boards to perform open heart surgery on me. Did they take it that serious, or are they really qualified for the position? Exactly. Maybe we're doing them a favor by saying you should look for another job. I have two funny stories that I think you'll appreciate. Yes. So I actually posted this the other day. So I had a coach. I've always been 
raised with tough love, like from my dad. My dad grew up with no father and an abusive alcoholic brother. So my dad only knows tough love, you know, and mm-hmm. that's what it is. And it is what it is. I've come to realize my own patterns as a new father. My son's one that I don't like and didn't like and how I have to like do the opposite. Like, if you don't like something that's being done to you, you probably shouldn't do it to other people, including your family, right? Yeah. So I was like a chubby kid growing up, but I was no, quick. Hard to imagine. Yeah, I know. I was, uh, it's a long story. I broke my ankle <laughs> last year. I'm down 20 pounds, super fast now. I'm, I'm in really good shape so now. It was a great thing. Best, it was a total like <laughs> blessing in disguise, right? Two weeks before my son was born, I broke my ankle, shattered everything, plates, screws, you name it, playing softball. So my favorite player was a guy by the name of Deion Sanders. His nickname was Primetime. I don't know if you know who he was. He was like this show-off guy, you know, best athlete on the field, mm-hmm. high step, dancing into the end zone. I was just a little fat kid, you know? So I'm like, if I ever get an opportunity to score a touchdown, which I'm probably not going to at this early on in life, I had to be like 10 years old, let's say. I'm going to high step my ass into the end zone. So I played defense. I took the ball out of the quarterback's hands. I broke through the line. Literally took the handoff from the quarterback, which is unheard of. And all I see is just open pasture to run to to score a touchdown, right? Yeah. So it's like Forrest Gump. Yeah, I'm like, I don't even realize what's happening. And I wound up high-stepping my ass into the end zone like Deion Sanders did. You know, like I'm just like a little 10-year-old fat kid celebrating his like only touchdown ever so far in life. First touchdown ever in practice. So the coach is calling me, Jeff, get over here. Get your ass over here. You went to the wrong side? I come up, I think he's like, congratulate me. Best thing ever. He's like, if you ever show off like that again, you will never play for me. Grab my face mask. And I peed in my pants. (laughs) Literally peed in my pants. I was 10 years old and... Literally, that was, I tell you, like one of those moments you'll never forget. I could check back mentally into that specific moment where we were standing on the field. And he instilled the fear of life into me. Like, yeah, instilled the fear. Yeah. And I was like. Fear of death or life. Yeah. Fear of both, I think. I, I was alive. I felt more alive, right? Oh, okay. And I'm like, this is important to realize. I never celebrated again. I scored plenty of touchdowns after that, but I never celebrated again mm-hmm. because of that moment. And. That year we went on, we had a very good team. We were one win away from going to Disney World for like the Pop Warner National Championship. We came in second place. And the trophy we got from second place was bigger than any of the first place trophies we ever got. I mean, it's a national level, mm-hmm, huge, mm-hmm. huge trophy, big thing. And I didn't put it up next to my trophies. Even though it was the biggest trophy, I didn't, it could set second place, you know? But mm-hmm. that's like how I was mm-hmm. raised. Like, mm-hmm. you either win or you don't. Like, mm-hmm. You know, first, second, third, like if I didn't get number one on it, I didn't want it. But most people like, oh, yeah, biggest trophy, number two, or take the plaque off or like try and hide behind it. But that really comes down from like a sense of insecurity. I think sports allowed me personally to be confident with what I did on the field. Like you show up, you perform, doesn't matter what color you are, how big you are, what you look like, you perform. And I grew up in an all white town. And we didn't have a football team. And the town that was adjacent to us was half black, half white, but mostly all the black kids play football. Mm-hmm. So white town, white kid growing up, going into all black town, you you know, obviously it's a culture shot, uh, Somerville in Jersey. Okay. So again, it wasn't about black and white. It was about community. It was about the parents coaching together. It was about the parents mm-hmm. watching the games together. And I think experiencing that early on and going through the trenches together with another race, for example, mm-hmm. like taught me early on, it doesn't matter male, female, doesn't matter, black, white, pink, purple, whatever you are, like it's a human connection and interaction, but it's all based around community. Yeah. Well, that's a wonderful thing that sports does bring So my question is, how do you bring that tough love sports 
into classrooms because in today we're in a Sue happy world where you can't say anything to little Johnny, you know, who did something wrong. How does that change? And how do we almost even police officers go down that route too, but how do we protect the authority? Not saying police officers are right or wrong. You know, people have their own opinions. I respect everybody's opinion, but teachers, like if a teacher's in a position to reprimand a child or do something and they're trying to prove a point and a teacher usually spends more time with a kid from K to eight, let's say, probably than their parent does, right? Because they're with them 40 hours a week, like a full-time job. How do we give that teacher that confidence to make that decision to parent that kid? It's such a hard question because some teachers are capable of it and some teachers aren't. Yes, teachers get penalized Mm -hmm. both by literally, they break the law if they touch the kids these days, right? And then there are some kids who do act up and are very disruptive to the learning and they have rooms, closets now where they are actually, these children are allowed to physically be locked into in some places. Serious. Seriously. What are your thoughts on that? The whole system, it's horrific. I can think some people I like to lock in closets though. Not kids, no, no. people, <laughs> adults. No, but, but when you see these little rooms. Yeah. Sad. That's it's, terrible. It's like, what does this country come down to? It's it's shocking. But then you see, I've, I went in, I've gone into classrooms where, you know, there's like a teacher sitting there behind an I, I, iPad. I'm like, Hello, today I'm going to be reading to you about Seriously. And nobody's paying any, I wouldn't pay attention no, to that. Out. I it's, it's horrible. So, and then maybe get a disruptive kid in that classroom, right. but wouldn't you be just, I mean, it's, it's, it's so hard. It's such a case by case situation, but you know, I would say, so I, I did tour a very well-respected, but sometimes let's say they call this uh, charter school system, this school in New York, too tough, too disciplined, I should say. But when I visited it, I thought it was brilliant for the kids who need that discipline. Maybe they don't have it at home. They don't have that structure. It's true. It starts very earlier, early in the day if your parents have to go to their jobs earlier. Um, and they have a great after-school program. And they don't waste a second. So what you're talking about when they have the smart board, then teachers can figure sure. out how much time is wasted yep. on that, right? Yep. This school, the transition, I mean, it was so fast. I like whiplash. It was like 10 seconds between between math, between English, between chess, between going to a classroom, they line up, it's regimented. All their work is lined up on the wall and they see it. And it's really high level, high level work. Do you like that? Do you agree with that? See, I couldn't put my kids in there right. because my kids get plenty of discipline at home. So to have it at school too, and to be in that kind of such a regimented too place, much, too much. it is too much for them. I think it's too much also, sorry to cut you off, is yeah. you know, when we get into the, what people don't realize is when you get into the real world, right, especially yeah. in the career that you go into, mm-hmm. right? A lot of jobs and careers today are yeah. very flexible. Like mm-hmm. it's not a 10 minute block out of your entire day. It's like, all right, I have projects to do, but no one gives you like 15 deadlines a day unless you're in that career. But like, especially if you work on commission or work for yourself, mm-hmm, like mm-hmm. you go from being, okay, you have seven classes a day for four years straight and you had 12 years of school. And before that, you're told what to do every step of the day from the time you wake up to the time you mm-hmm. get home, if you will, and then you're on your own. Mm-hmm. You know, like, how do you personally create that schedule? How do you personally create, like, you know, your work-life balance? How do you manage to go get groceries and still get your dry cleaning and still be home at a certain time? But, no one teaches you that. But I think that is something that has to be developmentally appropriate. Right. Something that I see often is if you are never taught how to organize your backpack, Mm -hmm. how can you ever figure out how to organize your bedroom, your desk or your life? Right. So I think what we have to do in this country that we are not doing, maybe, of course, are pockets of people who do and classrooms that do. But start at your preschool level, figure out, you know, this is where you put your your dirty cup or, you know, your shoes or just organize your little bag that you take to school. Figure start out what, simple. 
start very simple, but we don't do that. And I think right now it's like, especially, oh my gosh, with the advent of technology, it's so hard right. for kids to stay right. organized because right. they don't even physically see where things go. At all. But and then usually in the morning you have a tired mom or dad, you know, messy bed hair, whatever, waking up one eye open, packing little Johnny's lunchbox, throwing stuff in, right? And then throwing the backpack in like disheveled, honey, we're late, grabbing you by the ear to, you know, get by the car. Yeah, yeah. Not in every household, but in yeah, many households, standard. you know, it's pretty standard, but that's like that fast paced, like chaotic world that people create. And I think that, mm. again, if a kid sees that, they're going to go in one or two directions. From my, I'm just giving you my opinion on this. You probably have proof and statistics otherwise. No, no. But like, if little Johnny sees that, little Johnny's going to be a mess, like what he sees, mm-hmm. or he's going to be like so OCD that like everything has to be lined up, color coordinated, you know, mm. over the top of what he didn't like growing up. I could see that. I'm just thinking about that. I just think there have to, I mean, not all parents are going to be super organized and there are parents who work and there is going to be last minute stuff. People who are not organized are actually more creative. Is that true? I heard like the messier you are, the more creative and free spirited and thinking you are. It could be, but I don't know. No proof behind that? (laughs) I I don't know. But but if you aren't organized and creative, can you actually monetize that creativity? That's good. Maybe start projects and never finish them. Yeah. And you have to have such perseverance. And, you know, if you want to be a creative in this world. Right. You have to deal with tons of rejection, you know, and yeah. you and you may not ever scrape two pennies together to rub together, sure, you know. So sure. the discipline has to go hand in hand with creativity if you want to actually make money word, from it. Discipline. So I've come up with that over the past couple of weeks. It's been like a re- reoccurring word that like kind of sticks out. You hear it and you hear like a ding, like an aha yeah, yeah, moment. Yeah. So again, sports teaches you discipline. If you don't show up, you get penalized or you get punished or you're running until you throw up or you're running until like, you know, your legs can't move anymore or whatever it might be. Physically, yeah. In your perfect world, how do you implement discipline to the different age groups? Let's say from one to four, five to eight, nine to 12, and then 12 and on. Like, how do you, because I feel like you you do have to start slowly, right? And gradually implement it. How would you start disciplining those age groups? So personally- I would preface this all by saying, I feel like in this country, there is some weird association where if you are disciplined or being disciplined, you cannot have any fun in your life. Correct. I used to be grounded for weeks at a time. And I used to say another word, I'd be grounded for a month. At, like, I think I was grounded for six months in like the eighth grade. I couldn't leave my house. Okay. Oh, my I mean, people, too, I mean, I mean, <laughs> yeah. yeah, I think your parents would be arrested for that for these, these days, yeah. but it's, it's fascinating. So I, I feel like kids can sit still. They actually can. You just have to engage them in something that's interesting. And don't and please don't put your kids in front of an iPad and be a couch potato all day. Fix, yeah. Give them yep. a book to be, yep. you know, completely entrenched in whatever's going on in the book. And it's just I, I feel like because I've seen it in Japan, you know, the kids typically in preschool, it's a very, very play-based preschool system in Japan. So they run around and they play and different age groups mix and, but they're also taught to very much take care of their own things and to take care of each other. It's a really beautiful system. Like that friendships. Way. Well, it's or a, a community. Like so. A community, yeah. literally like during cleanup, you don't just clean up your stuff. You clean, you help clean other people's areas mm-hmm. and they kind of have had chores. It's not just about yourself. Then in first grade though, it's the typical, everybody has a desk and you sit at your desk and you sit still for however long the classroom time is, 45, 50 minutes so no a talking, period. nothing. Just... No talking. But something we, again, don't do in this country well is we don't challenge kids to the aptitude they need to be challenged. At all. Right? So they get in trouble. So that, yeah. 
or act up or whatever, or show off of or the, joke around. Exactly. Class clown. It's and it's and and teachers are thrown with kids of different levels, so that is definitely challenging. By the time the kids, you know, when they come in in kindergarten or first grade, sure. you have some kids who've never used scissors and some kids who are reading chapter books. Yeah. Or bring you know, machetes, whatever. Oh my god, that's a whole other. It's a whole other issue <laughs> yeah, that they are yeah, now yeah. dealing with. I know, with. I know. Right. So again, it, and I'll go back to if you have teachers who have gotten masters and are literally able to also become engineers, doctors, or lawyers, they are far more qualified to handle a classroom with different abilities coming in than somebody who got maybe a 2.0 and couldn't hack being an engineering major. Mm-hmm. And I'm not saying it's the teacher's fault either. It. It's our fault. It's our society because we, we allow don't, it. We allow it. We don't elevate the credentialing process to require high standards. Talking about discipline, I think kids, if you, you know, when you're turned on by something, mm-hmm. there have been times when, I, when I'm sitting in front of my computer and writing or I'm taking notes or working on an article and I don't move for 12 hours. And I don't know where the time went. You you get totally lost. Or when you're involved in something and then, wait, you got to go now. What? What time is it? We just started. You know? (laughs) And that's that's what the goal should be for every time you have a child in your classroom. You've got to get to that point where you challenge them and excite them to want to learn. School isn't boring. I I did a workshop recently. And I have to say, I was very surprised when when I asked the group of parents. I said, so, and there were about 20, 25 people in the room. I said, so why do your kids go to school? Why do they think they go to school? And a few times I heard because it's the law. I would say that, yeah. But that's that's such a sad answer terrible, to me. Terrible, terrible. They're only going, what about you are setting them up to be, they're passionate about what they're learning, Social. lifelong learning, <laughs> socialization, yeah. learning how to do math and read and be engaged in our society, learning how to participate in a democracy, learning how to debate, having uh, civil discourse. I mean, there's so many skills, learning how to appreciate art and fostering creativity, sure. music. I mean, there's so many things, but you're going because it's the law. It's, 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 do you find that people say it's more so the law in underprivileged communities, like, oh, my kid has to go to school, or do you find it in every community? That I don't know. There's no I, I would. I, I don't know. I think it's, sadly, I think it's families that don't have higher level conversations with their kids about the beauty of an education. And maybe the parents didn't have great educational experiences. Right. Right. So maybe I, I don't exactly know where that comes from other than that conversation should, that has to that has to change. So I feel like one of your goals, I'm going to make your own goal for you. I'm just pulling oh, this cool. out of you. I already tapped into your brain, so I'm going to pull out what I got, yeah. right? Is I feel like you want to change the overall curriculum and education experience in America. Is that your number one priority right now? If I was to say, if you had carte blanche, carte blanche. Well, I would say, if you, I would say, equitably fund, and I don't mean our, all of our schools. So every child has an opportunity, mm-hmm. and that requires a gazillion different changes. I mean, it requires making sure you know Johnny from a socioeconomically disadvantaged area has a lot more money mm-hmm. spent on him per pupil. A child from an affluent area, because guess what? The affluent area child has parents who are probably educated and have all the resources, and Johnny has none of those resources, so to make it equitable, you got to spend more on him. Interesting. Right? So fixing that and, and changing the pipeline. I mean, in this country, we are so culturally shifting that mentality of the pipeline, and we're so involved, is self-involved. Like, what's in it for me? How am I going to get to Well, how is Johnny going to get to college? Because Johnny may be the next Nobel Prize winner. You know, and, and sure. what's going to happen to Johnny sure. if we don't? Well, I think an important thing, like, you know, again, I really think back to what I know. So for 32 years, I know sports. And mm-hmm. for the past 13 years now, I know mortgages and real estate, right? Mm-hmm. And I think a great example of, like, taking care of your neighbor and your community is, okay, the four of us have our house in the block, right? Mm-hmm. And 
you go into foreclosure and your house sells for $200,000 under market valuation because it's not in good shape. Well, automatically that drives down the price of your house and Mm -hmm. your friend's house and your other friend's house, right? Mm -hmm. So like having an invested interest of your community and neighbor and neighborhood succeeding, like it goes much further Mm -hmm. between like, oh, I want to get ahead. Well, I can get ahead ahead of all you guys, but if you fail, I'm then going to be impacted by it indirectly or directly. And I just think it comes down to, again, teamwork. Like, you could be the best player, but if you're scoring more points than the rest of the team and we're losing every game, who cares if you scored 100 points if we're losing every game, you mm-hmm. know? And I just think that people do need to get back to that community, do need to get back to that neighborhood. You know, like, I always, like, walk around and call people, hey, what's up, fam? You know, like, what's what's up, brother? What's up, you know? Yeah, yeah. And, like, c- create that. But where do you believe that, because obviously you've studied this, where do you believe, like, that system got broken? Because at some point, I mean, we went from being, from what I knew, a very year, hundred years ago, very secluded, like everyone stuck to their own selves, community. Now everyone's living amongst each other. And I feel like there's like a lot of unspoken tension and resentment. Do you find that? Well, if we want to have a history lesson here, I think it was during Ronald Reagan. Okay. Um, I didn't know that. So I just learned something. Yeah. I mean, it was very much about privatization and capitalism. You see what's happened since then, even with our education. I mean, Ronald Reagan wanted to get rid of our Department of Education. Wow. And when you think about, you know, every man fend for himself kind of capitalism mm-hmm. in our country, I mean, in, in no, we're seeing now it doesn't really work. We have to take care of everybody else. And right now we have a system where corporate interests are the most important. Mm-hmm. And we see them, oh my gosh, if you look at something that I think is fascinating, is if you go, so Miami-Dade has the fourth largest school district in the country. Miami-Dade, yeah. Miami-Dade. Mm-hmm. And if you look at, if you go to their Miami-Dade, the, the literally the d- district website, I mean, it's a corporation. Yeah. I mean, they run food service, transportation, police department, everything, right? They have a page, a webpage for lobby groups that come in there. That, you know, and so you have corporate interests who are going into the classrooms. And, and for the last academic year, Apple went in there, I don't know, four or five times, maybe wow. six or seven. And so they have to list every time someone comes. And so when we talk about, you know, where it all fell apart, I would say when it became the me, 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 you know, and look out for yourself kind of a place where now we don't have communities. And it's not just people who you may not be related to. Mm-hmm. I mean, now that we are so sp- spread apart with so much more, I think, economic opportunity maybe – you know, we don't have intergenerational homes or we're not living near our grand, you know, At all. It used to be parents. like grand, great-grandparent here, grandparent here, mom and dad live across the street, kid buys a house next door, and now you have a whole little family, like the nucleus right here. Yeah, and even in the neighborhood, right? Your neighbor sure. used to be like, hey, uh, you know, I have to go run an errand. Yeah. Can you watch Jane for yeah, me? Yeah. And now if you leave Jane home alone, the neighbor's going to call the police. Correct. So it's it's a very, it's sad it's really, really sad. And the only way we can rise as a society is to stop this growing gap. And I tell you, I fear it's only going to get worse. I agree with you. you know, I think it has to get worse before it, it gets has, better. And, and we need this wake-up call. It's pathetic to me that the whole Varsity Blues thing happened. But what was even more surprising was that it took so long for it to be uncovered. And not only that, people are like, oh, well, you know, now it's not going to be a problem. To me, it's, it's just going to go d- deeper underground. It has to. Well, I think that's a problem with America and a lot of industries, right? People like to just, you know, blanket over what the issues are, put the carpet over it, and then before you know it, like there's a hole in the floor, and then you step on the carpet and you fall right through. You know, it's like smoke and mirrors. But I think that's, I do truly believe that's every industry. And it's so Mm -hmm. funny. My friend, uh, he's got two kids. He's got a a senior daughter in high school and Mm -hmm. a freshman son in high school. Mm -hmm. And we talk pretty much every day. One of my go-to guys, really, really good dude. When we talk, he's like, 
well, what can we do to help these kids? Because what we can do to help these kids? You know, my son's a freshman. My daughter is you know, going to be going to college. They're mm-hmm. both great. You know, they're both good athletes. I'm like, well, ask if they have any type of like credit or financial literacy in school as far as like moving forward. He's like, no. This is a couple months ago. And just last night he texted me. He's like, my son just texted me saying they're going to implement some type of like teacher. They're going to implement a teacher to teach credit to these kids, right? And I'm like, oh, that's great. So basically they're going to take a teacher that doesn't know about credit and have them teach Mm -hmm. these kids about credit. Like, how does that work? Now you have somebody who's not an expert teaching these kids on what to expect. And it's a big problem because people don't know the intricacies of it. I can tell you that when I was 25, I got a call from a guy who ran Tiffany's real estate at the time, you know, mm-hmm. Tiffany's. He was mm-hmm. the guy that picked out their mm-hmm. next locations, had a master's from Columbia real estate school. And the questions that he masters you on paper, this guy's you know mm-hmm. 45 years old. You would think he'd be like a genius in real estate. The questions that he was asking me were so basic that he didn't know the answers to. I'm like, yeah. how did you get a master's in real estate? Like yeah. I didn't graduate college. I didn't. And I failed math twice. That's why I didn't graduate college, believe it or not. And I'm writing hundreds of millions of dollars in mortgages. Mm-hmm. You know, so like there's no correlation between like going and getting your master's and everything else and teaching and being that expert working for a billion dollar company Mm -hmm. and me, the kid that failed that football, that failed math twice, now educating you on that as the expert. But that shows that the experience is a little bit more valuable than reading it from a book. It's an American story, right? right? I don't think this can happen in many places. And I think you are so rare. I don't think many people these days can share your experience. Correct. And maybe That's you true. had parents. At this age, at least. At this age. And I think you probably had parents who still were tough on you, educated, supportive. So no one in my family ever graduated. I think they both got their GED. No one ever graduated wow. college in my That's family. Remarkable. My parents were so pissed at me still to this day because I didn't graduate college. Of course. You yeah, know? I could understand that. It's yeah, their dream, too. too. Me, too. Like, you know, I get it. I did it more for like a spiteful, like immature reason at 20 years old. Like, you cut me from the football team. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to mess up your graduation rate. It's kind of yeah, like an I'm ego sure thing, you, you know? Your parents it was personal. Heart attacks. Pissed. I mean, like, still to this day. Yeah. I don't talk to my dad, but part of the reason is probably because of that deep yeah. down, you know? Yeah. And I get it, but I'm like, well, you didn't graduate college, and look what you did for yourself, you know? Mm. So you kind of have that tug of war, but back to parenting. I think parenting is really where, you know, I saw, like you said, roll up your sleeves, right? And again, I can only speak from a year and two weeks of having a son. Forget the nine months of, like, my son's mother being pregnant. That's a whole other story. (laughs) But being a parent, right, what I noticed is you have to lead by example, and they're mirror images of you from Mm -hmm. a kid's standpoint. And... Parents, I believe, are so not present, whether they're on their phones or their computers or just you know watching sure. TV. What are your recommendations to parents to actually be role models and parents? How do we get parents to actually parent their children? Well, a line I like using is, your kids can't raise themselves. So just think about that. Who do you think is raising your kids? The teachers, the school? No, you are. Social media? <laughs> well, a majority of information that the kids get, and I'm talking a heavy majority, 70 or 80 percent, is yep. social media and YouTube. Yep. And let's think about who's yep. editing that through. No, nobody. <laughs> Nobody's looking to see if that stuff is real or inappropriate yep. or any of that, right? So to me, we have to do what everybody is not doing right now for the most. And when I say everybody, it's I'm just majority. Kind of majority. Yeah. It's family time. Make family time. It's really not that hard, right? Do you do family time still? Oh, all the time. Really. Yeah. Give us a, give us your schedule. Well, the kids actually, they go to school different times. One leaves a lot earlier than the other. So one is actually out the door when the other wakes up. Okay. And then I have a third who's away boarding school. So who's old now? Older. Um, <laughs> so it's a little different. But 
so then they go to school and then they come back and dinner is always family time. No phones, no TV. Oh, for sure. Nothing. None of that. Do you guys converse the entire time? The entire time. What do you ask? Well, we always talk, they always talk about school and their friendships, what they learned, if they had quizzes, their assignments, what they find is cool, what book they're reading. Of course, they tease each other, you know, their kids. Yeah. I'm smarter than you. I'm, you know, Food all this other stuff. Not, not really. Oh, forget it. Oh, my God. In my house, <laughs> not they, happening. I, no, I, I tell them my chair is stained. I go crazy. <laughs> <laughs> I don't even, I make sure they have napkins on their laps. But it's, it's really good. It's, it's really important. Shoes off at the front door. Oh, absolutely. Is that a culture thing or is that more of like is your role? I grew up that way, but yeah, right. it's, it's, I think everybody should take their shoes off, especially if they live in New York City. But, you know, it's family time and we have one room. I believe in this as well. If you have, and we've sacrificed a bedroom for this. We have an office in my, in my apartment. We live in New York City mm-hmm. and everybody has a desk in that office, including where I work. And every day we sit at our desks and we do our work. Wow. So that's family what time. What time too. frame do you do that? Any, any time in the evening because, um, who picks that time? They, they, by themselves, because they have different schedules. Yeah. Um, so they'll have an after school activity. Oh, so it's not like everyone at the same time goes but we in. we end up there at the same time, typically. Well, so you all gravitate there. Before dinner, and then maybe a little bit after dinner. And everybody has different amounts of work to do, too. Sure. So they stay there longer or shorter. But that's our place. And then it's, you know, then we all see what everybody else is doing. What kind of work. Now, do you personally discuss finances, money, business with your children? And if so, at what age did you begin, you know, navigating those conversations? So probably because I was a daughter of a post-World War II mom mm-hmm. who was terrified she wasn't going to have enough money. I think everyone is, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I it's, it's something that's been deeply entrenched in my brain. So I say when my son was still in a stroller living in New York, I was, my second wasn't born. So he had to be under 17 months old, but he could, he walked away too early. So, but we would go to the grocery store. Mm-hmm. Every Monday morning, mm-hmm. it was perfect time at the time because they restocked it, yeah. right? First yeah. thing, I don't know when they did, maybe late Sunday overnight. All the shelves are full. Nobody's in the grocery store on Monday morning. Empty, yeah. Totally yeah. empty. And I would do the week's grocery shopping with him. And I remember I had one, I would had one cart I pushed in front and I pulled one in back. And I would park the stroller and he would run around and we'd talk about where everything was what everything was and how much everything was. Really? Yeah. So he would look at price tags and all that stuff. Yeah, and we'd weigh stuff so that he would know, you know, if it costs, sometimes grapes and cherries are really expensive and they get you for the, <laughs> by the per pound. It's yeah. not by the yeah. pack, you know? Yeah. Um, and we talk about that. And if, even if they don't understand, I would do the math with them. i do the calculations. we talk about percentages and discounts. And yeah, literally when he could probably barely put two words together. But I think it's really important. I don't want him to be the guy who's like 50 years old going into the supermarket thinking a cucumber is a zucchini. I get it. Yeah. I get it. Especially if you're going on a date, you know. And <laughs> I mean, then, you, then you're dependent on somebody. So what's interesting is, yeah. again, I think you you definitely are a product. Of, everyone's a product of their environment, right? People make decisions. And I don't judge. But you know, my mom and dad split up like basically when I was born. They were together from, since they were like 16, 13 years old, way back when. So mm. they split up when I was born. My dad had a girlfriend for time. And my dad left her. Supposedly, I broke them up when I was five years old. You know, whatever. Like, totally get out of my house. It was my dad. I wanted my time with my dad, right? So wow. I'm like, yeah, get out. Kicked her out. Kicked kick, kick butt out. But then he, then he got somebody 20 years younger than him. So he's like 40 and she's like 20. And I'm like, are, you, are you repeating history, by the way? Am I repeating history? Yeah. I'm telling you a story. But maybe you're repeating history with your life. We're getting there, right? We're getting there. <laughs> Settle down over here. So I'm like, okay. So my dad was always self-sufficient. Mm-hmm. Did everything on his own. Cooked. Clean laundry, mm-hmm. like you know, when he obviously did well for himself, he would like pay people, you know, a maid mm-hmm. or whatever. 
But I never looked at, this is kind of crazy. I never looked at female as a like partner from a financial standpoint because mm-hmm. I didn't see that. You know, like still to this day, he pretty much takes care of my mom. You know, like I've been out of the house since I'm 18. You know, mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. says a lot about him. He's a great person, great human being. He's always a provider because he grew up with nothing. But I didn't see that give take. Like mm-hmm. I'd be at my mom's house. I'd get in trouble. She would call him to ask how she should punish me. I'm like... He wasn't even here, you know, like, wow. why are you going to, why are you going to like poison the well now? Like he shouldn't be mad at me if you and I got into an argument. So like, even wow. though they live in separate households, they still, I'm going to say co-parented, but he made the final decision. How do you feel people have a balance back and forth of dependency, codependency, and also how you manage that give and take in a, in a relationship managing kids? I think it's really hard. I've not mastered that. You haven't? No, no. I think it's really hard. And I think there's so many factors at play when you have kids. Because mm-hmm. you have um, your way and then your partner has his way. Absolutely. And I think it's 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 just stuff that doesn't come out until you have the children typically. And these are conversations I think you have to be having before you decide to settle down, get married, and have kids. Isn't that more like hypothetical though? Like you're planning for something that you it don't even so know. It is so hypothetical. And it's, and it's really, really hard. And I think you have to look back at how you were raised to figure out if you want to replicate that or you want to change it up. And it's, I mean, nothing splits up a family more than having kids, ironically. <laughs> I know. I'm with you. Right? And so, it's the best thing in the world, too. The kids, my, like my son's the best thing in the world, but. It's, it's just, it's, it's really, really hard. And I think today, especially with what's going on in the world and figuring out who the right male and female or non-gender specific or like, it, there's so many or transmutations. male wants to be a female, a female wants to be a male. It's like, very yeah. confusing right now. It's super confusing. For us, for our kids, for sure. at this time right now. But whose role is what? Very much so. And, you know, there's so much research that women do a majority of the household work, even if they're even the majority breadwinner. Mm-hmm. And then you mm-hmm. have men who were raised in traditional homes who expect the women to do that and be that. So it's great. You can work, but you still have to take care of everything. Right, right. You know, and I, I think it's, it, we don't have role models with people who've managed to balance it all out. But then again, you look at our times, we are, unless you're in that 1% of 1%, mm-hmm. you have to make money. You have to, I mean, how are you, uh, there's no, no, no parent who's not terrified of how they're going to pay for college. Or, or daycare or food or, daycare, or anything. Or any of it, yeah, right? Correct. Private school. Especially I mean, as an entrepreneur. It's a really scary time to be thinking about that. So you, you talk about dependency and independence mm-hmm. and every day you have to assess. I think it's really hard. I, I, if there's a formula, I think people, I think that guy would get really rich. Or, or girl, female. I, I meant I meant male or female. <laughs> I meant that it's very gender. Are you familiar with opportunity zones at all? No. Not at all. Well, I, I'm from an economic zones, but no. So it's actually very interesting. So back in 2017, so backtrack. Before 2017, the government came out pretty much, when I say the government, the higher-ups, if you will, came out and said a lot of America is underprivileged, undereducated, mm-hmm. and the real estate living standards aren't even close to par, if you will, right? It's where the term gentrification comes in. Now, Gentrification, by definition, I'm an educator as well, and I hated school, I like giving the backstory. So gentrification, by definition, is basically just living, raising living standards to like par level. It's not making them, you know, the Taj Mahal. It's basically taking like a slumlord and bringing it up to, okay, I guess like if I had to live here, I'm safe living here. Ceilings aren't collapsing and everything else. The effect of gentrification is displacement. Now, people who can pay $500 a month for this you know, collapsing ceiling apartment mm-hmm. can't now afford to pay nine hundred dollars a month for this 
safe apartment. Mm-hmm. So the $500 tenant then gets kicked out of their mm-hmm. community, their home, now has to relocate, you know, life all up in shambles, okay? So the government came out and said, hey, we need to solve this problem, okay? We need to figure out how we upgrade America, if you will. So every governor was given the ability to designate one-fourth, so 25% of their state, as a designated opportunity zone. Mm-hmm. So let's say you go into New Jersey, for example, or right here, I'll give you New York City. So they took the census from 2012, mm-hmm. and they said, Bushwick and Williamsburg, Brooklyn, mm-hmm. today are underprivileged, underdeveloped, everything. As you know, mm-hmm. they're not. They're most expensive because that mm-hmm. gap happened so quickly from 12 to 17. They used old data for it. Now, they said, well, we need to have this privately funded like you know we're not going to raise the money ourselves we need to bring in high net worth individuals to come in and you know change the areas so they basically gave high net worth individuals the opportunity in the opportunity zone Mm -hmm. to defer their capital gains Mm -hmm. for a minimum seven years and it's a 10-year plan into these underprivileged areas Mm -hmm. so if you you know sell a, a bond a stock or a business you're able to take that capital gain and you have to put into a qualified opportunity zone fund, mm-hmm. which then deploys into an opportunity zone. Part of that that comes into it is our ancillary businesses. So education. So if you're going to develop this underprivileged area and you're going to get that tax benefit, what type of social impact are you going to bring? Are you going to bring financial literacy? Are you going to bring how to build your credit score? Are you going to create schools? Are you going to create jobs? Are you going to create mm-hmm. health and wellness? Are you going to mm-hmm. do all mm-hmm. these things? So far, there's a lot of unknown about it. It was passed in December of 2017. But I feel like with what you're looking to do, we should definitely talk about getting this funded by people's capital gains and develop the educational curriculum, you know, to try it out in these underprivileged areas. And I think that, you know, you have people have to do it anyway. Mm -hmm. And if we were able to get funding behind it, we'd be able to spearhead that and have test cases. So where is happening, you said, in Bushwick and... Well, it's every, it's every single state has it. 25% of every state has it. But Bushwick, Brooklyn, that's an example of yeah. what it is here. Mm-hmm. It obviously doesn't make sense. Like a lot of the South Bronxes, there's parts of Pennsylvania, and obviously most of it's down south, like Alabama, like really underprivileged areas. But you're able to go in and get funded for a social impact to give back. So I feel like this is kind of like part of the initiative. Learn more about it, yeah. Yeah, it's definitely something that I think could, you know, at least catapult what you're looking to do and move forward and get a shot at creating that. Hmm, I'll look into that. Yeah, so qualified Ob- opportunity yeah. zones, yeah. Ob- so the positive that, the whole story behind that was on the football field one night, thinking of a cool podcast name. I was three years in the making of trying to figure out the name for a podcast before I launched it, and it came to me, deposit that. So deposit that means to deposit one thing to the listeners, the viewers, to their memory bank that they can implement into their either personal life or business life or both mm-hmm. from our guests. So what's mm-hmm. one thing you want to leave everybody with that can make them a better person or have a better quality of life? If it's for everyone, not just parent, teacher, it could be that. child, stakeholder specific. Yeah. I would say I feel right now we are so, and we talked about this as a theme earlier, we're so entrenched in who we are within ourselves right now that we're not looking at the bigger picture. Mm-hmm. If we do zoom out and look at what's going on, not just with our president and Ukraine and Syria and Iran, and I mean, you have to think about, okay, so what does this look like for the next year, maybe six months, six months, year, 
five years, 10 years, and maybe 20 and, and so forth, because what world are we creating and what world are we creating for our children and what does that look like? And right now I feel like we are so stuck in our own heads and some people are scared, some people feel empowered, but what we're really creating is a generation of kids who aren't going to be able to survive in the world we are creating for them. And while we are showing all of our vulnerabilities to the world, mm -hmm. the rest of the thriving world is moving ahead. And what we are doing right now with such a split country is we are creating much more damage for years to come than what we then we will be able to get out of. You know, it's that one step forward, three steps back kind of sure. a thing. So we have to be prepared for this and everything from what's your kid going to do? Do they know what's going to happen when it's the middle of December and it's 80 degrees or it's the middle of the summer and it's 130 degrees? Are they prepared for that? Uh, do they have the basic content, factual knowledge to be able to survive in the future when guess what? Their Indian and Chinese counterparts are literally going to be three to five years ahead of them wow. in math, science, all this other stuff. I mean, when we don't invest in the arts, which we're not doing in this country mm -hmm. in terms of education for our kids, the, the first place that funding gets pulled is for there. the arts. Yep. If anybody goes to any of the artistic institutions in New York City right now, what do you see? You see 70 to 80 year olds in Lincoln Center and Carnegie Hall. There's nobody young, but young people aren't being taught to appreciate these things. Or you see people from other countries, a lot of European and Asian nations, and they come and they appreciate it and they're much younger. Right. Go to our museums. Who's painted the paintings on the walls or the sculptures, the photographs? And look at who's attending those museums. Hmm. There are not a lot of Americans in there. So, so Americans really should just try and take on someone else's culture and just follow, like, get in line and follow someone else's path because it's proven to work. Well, I, I, we can't hook, line, and sink or take another, but it, I, we have to look at the bigger picture of what's going on. Mm. I mean, there are people that I've, I, I've, I've met who say, you know, right now the world currencies are pegged on the dollar. I've met people who have said in 10 years it's going to be the Chinese renminbi. Wow. You know, if you think about, you know, if we set up this trade war with China, yeah. not if we are— and if you look at the countries that will have to take a side, they're going to have to do it based on economic reasons. Correct. And the largest trade partner for most countries China. is China. What are we doing in this country? Interesting. So I think about our kids in this world, in our country, and what are, how are we preparing them for this? You know, I don't think we are. And like we talked about, you know, participation trophies or second place trophies or everybody being able to succeed or no discipline or having that grit or learning on the field or learning wherever you're learning. If we thought it was tough for us, this next generation, it's going to be much tougher Big for them. Big trouble. And so yeah. as far as your book goes, where can everybody find your book? Oh, thank you. So World Class, it's one mother's journey halfway around the world uh, in search of the best education for her children. You can find it on Amazon. I'm on social media. Uh, what am I? LinkedIn, Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. You can go to my website. I have a Simon & Schuster author page. But really, I want to have these discussions with people. So mm -hmm. reach out to me. Yeah, I'm, we'll get you yeah, to the website. We'll put like, the right contact information on you, awesome. link yeah. to the books, all that stuff. But I think even if you disagree with me, mm -hmm. which I think is totally normal yeah, because every, everybody has their own opinions, we have to have these conversations. And we can't get our backs up. We have to because the bottom line is our kids 
there, I don't think there are many people who think the public school system in the U.S. is thriving. Right. And if you are, I'm sorry, you're, I mean, you're, you're kidding yourself. Right. It is. And every year when you look at when we look at our international standings, we're we're either in the middle of the pack and stagnant or falling. Hmm. Not going in the right direction. No, we're not. And so people who say we're doing works, it it's not working. Maybe we could team up and come up with our own curriculum. You know. Well, that's another problem. I think lots of people who aren't in education <laughs> yeah. actually try to go and fix education. Of course, we have to. I mean, they have the ones with the, ones with the experience. But the, exactly. You so got to bring the entrepreneurial mindset into school. And I don't care what anybody says. You have to, it can't be black and white. It has to be very gray. It probably does. But there needs to, there need to be a lot of big fixes. And we got to get the right people involved. So we're definitely going to have to have you back on the show for a follow-up to this. You know, I wish you the best of luck with your book and everything. I, I better get a signed copy. No, my and, gosh, uh, I don't think I brought a copy. But yeah, yeah we'll have everybody them. reach out to you and we'll have them follow you on all your social media and stuff. That's but it was awesome. truly a pleasure getting to know you on last minute. And uh, if I could do anything to help you, you have my full support. Yeah. Well, if since you work in the mortgage business, if, I, I know some <laughs> brokers have asked me to come into talks for I only advise and consult now. I'm done with all banks. I don't trust banks. So when the oh, market collapses, I want nothing to do with them. There you go. All I right. appreciate you coming on the show. Thank you so Take much. Take care. Thank you. <laughs> 